Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden, your podcast guide through Swedish history. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa, and this is episode 82, which will be all about the puke dispute. Basically, what happens in Sweden with the key players of the Engelbrecht rebellion just after the murder of the man himself in May 1436. Yes, we're going straight from a rebellion to a dispute, uh, pretty much, which I guess says something about what Sweden was like in this period of time. Yeah, it's been a stormy decade so far, that's for sure. But before we get on with that part of the story, it's time for our Swedish phrase of the week. And this week's phrase is Helsantiga stilla, which translates to English as the health stays quiet. Uh, but what does that mean? Well, it means that if something is well and healthy, then that doesn't bring attention to itself. It stays quiet. But if something is unwell or hurt or sick, then it's noticeable. You hear it, so to say. Like the other week, I hurt the two smallest toes on my foot. Like, I hadn't given those two toes much thought in general when they were just fine, when they were healthy and they were just staying quiet. But then when I hurt them, they weren't quiet anymore. They were screaming out in pain. Uh, and so then I noticed them. Exactly. So if everything's fine, there's nothing to talk about. If you're healthy, the health stays quiet. Yeah, you use it to indicate that all is well health-wise and nothing requires attention. And I didn't know this until I started doing some research for this episode, but this phrase actually comes from a very specific origin. It comes from a poem, Udalbunden, written by Erik Gustav Geyer in 1811. Geyer was a professor of history at Uppsala University, but also wrote philosophical works and poetry. He was a member of the Swedish Academy, which is still around. It's a bit like the Académie Française in France or the Real Academia Española in Spain, in that they're seen as an institution for the development and sort of correctness of the language. Among other things, they're the ones that decide who gets the Nobel Prize in literature each year, although in Yeo's case, he wouldn't have gotten to do that because the Nobel Prize didn't exist when he was in the academy in the early 1800s. This phrase is quite interesting because it gained popularity after first featuring in one of his poems, and then it made its way into everyday use. I suppose it's like in English, a few of the famous lines from Shakespeare have made their way into everyday use, like the world is my oyster, or even a wild goose chase. True, but I'd say Shakespeare is way more famous in the English-speaking world than Yeo is in Swedish. I think his poetry is still read if you're interested in poetry, but he's definitely dropped out of sort of the general knowledge for most people. I had to Google who he was, and I must confess I only vaguely recognize his name. So do you do him in school? Maybe, but he's definitely not like top 10 poets or writers of the language that you should know. Name the top five now. Uh, Werner von Hedenstam, probably, Selma Lagerlöf, um, Edith Södergran, maybe, as being influential for modern-day Swedish. When were they writing? Selma Lagerlöf, Edith Södergran, were all early 1900s. If you're going further back in time, maybe... Who's the Shakespeare Dolly? of Swedish history? Yeah, see, we didn't really have, like, an early... Well, we did, but do we have, like, from that period of time, a Shakespeare? Hmm, that's still read. Let me get back to you on that. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> and instead, we should go back all the way to the 1400s and back to the exact moment where we left off last time as the two halves of Engelbrecht's skull hit the ground outside Yerkholm Castle on either the 27th of April or the 4th of May uh, because, yeah, the sources aren't entirely in agreement of when this happened. So Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson, the man who was the figurehead of the peasant rebellion against high taxes and brutal foreign bailiffs wielding unfair power in local communities, a rebellion that then grew to include both the nobility and the church and where everyone's grievances with King Eric just bubbled to the surface. Well, he is no more. 
Immediately after the murder, the group that Engelbrecht was travelling with, which included his wife, were taken hostage by Bank Stenson Natterdag, the owner of Yorkholm Castle, and also the father of Engelbrecht's murderer, Magnus, but they're released pretty quickly afterwards. Engelbrecht's body will also be taken back to Urubru to be buried there. Meanwhile, news of Engelbrecht's murder spreads like wildfire. After all, it happened outside, in the open, for everyone to see, and it's easy to imagine how the news would have spread around the countryside. The local peasants were true Engelbrecht supporters too, and when they hear of his murder, there's an immediate call for revenge. Faced with this group of angry peasants ready to wield their axes and crossbows and pitchforks to avenge their leader, it's no surprise that both Magnus and his dad take off running. Yorkholm Castle isn't safe for them anymore. The records are a bit sketchy here and it's hard to piece together the story exactly, but it seems like they first fled to another castle they owned called Ringstadholm. Some sources say that they fled all the way to Denmark but soon returned, uh, but it's a bit unclear exactly what they do. It's also believed that Magnus then spends a few years as a fugitive and pirate, making a living off attacking ships around the coast of Östergötland. Well, that's quite a journey from young nobleman to murderer and then runaway and pirate. That's uh, not the career trajectory most people have. It's also not known if a trial is actually held or not. There are things that indicate that there would have been a trial, like the fact that Karl Knudson Bunde issues a letter of protection to Magnus Stenson, which might at first seem odd and look like he's protecting Engelbrecht's murderer, but it was actually common procedure at the time that a letter of protection was issued to a person awaiting trial to make sure that nothing happened to them before the trial. Basically, in this case, it was a way for the authorities, represented in the form of Kalknutson Bunde, to say, hey, local peasants, don't kill this guy, let him live so we can put him on trial and do this the proper way. Although the fact that this was common practice at the time, that hasn't stopped theories and arguments being put forward saying that Kalknutson Bunde was in fact somehow involved in Engelbrecht's murder, and that's why he's protecting Magnus Stenson. But like I said, most historians dispute that and point to the fact that, yeah, these letters of protection were common practice at the time. Either way, there are no records of any actual trial and no records of payments being made as a sort of reparation to Engelbrecht's family. So whilst it's not inconceivable that there was a trial, there's also no record of one. In fact, Engelbrecht's murderer got off pretty lightly either way. We know that in 1443 he's back from pirating and living as a nobleman. In 1450 he becomes a member of the Royal Council, and then he becomes the lawman of Nerka, just like his dad was, and he lives out his life in Yerkholm Castle, the scene of the murder. But uh, that's all way ahead in the storyline, but yeah, he's certainly not punished. <laughs> Again, quite a life, though, for Magnus Stenson Natterdag. From young nobleman, to murderer, to fugitive, pirate, nobleman again, counsellor and lawman. Imagine if we had, like, a judge in a regional court today that had previously been a pirate and carried out a murder. I'd hope he'd at least have an eye patch, though. <laughs> oh, I'm Judge Stenson, here to pass judgement on your crimes. I bet that's what he looked like when he was a lawman. Just still had that eye patch, maybe even a wooden leg from when he was a pirate. And why Magnus is able to come back and live this quite extraordinary and comfortable life, even though he murdered the figurehead of a national rebellion, is something that will become clearer as we proceed with the story over the next couple of episodes. Because with Engelbrecht gone, the Swedish rebellion against King Eric will to some extent proceed in another direction. Yes, let's rewind a little and look at what happens when news of Engelbrecht's murder reaches Stockholm, the Swedish council, and the other people involved in the rebellion. Remember, Engelbrecht was on his way to a council meeting when he was murdered, so pretty much everyone with any power in Sweden and influence in the ongoing rebellion against the king, they're all in Stockholm for this meeting when they get the news. And they are completely taken by surprise and don't seem to know quite what to do. 
One thing we do know that they do is send out letters to the local peasantry, saying that there was going to be a meeting in Uppsala to discuss what to do next. We know this because such a letter that was addressed to the peasants in the Diocese of Strangness has been preserved, and based on how that is worded, historians have assumed that similar letters were also sent out across Sweden. The preserved letters of Strangness says that they should send six tax farmers, which were these farmers who owned their own land, from each herred, which was the administrative division of local areas a bit smaller than a county, to a meeting in Uppsala on the 18th of May. So it seems like peasants and noblemen gathered in Uppsala quite soon after Engelbrecht's death, but unfortunately there's no record of what was said then. Historian Lars Olof Larsson, in his book about Engelbrecht and the rebellions in the 1430s, writes that they likely discussed the murder, but also the issue of taxation, since that remained the main issue for the peasants and well, had always been something that Engelbrecht championed. The murder was a sensitive issue for Karl Knutsenbunda and the Swedish council in their relationship with the peasantry. Not only was Engelbrecht the peasant's man in the rebellion, but his murderer was a member of the high nobility. It's easy to see how this could have sown distrust and division between the peasants and the nobility, which it did to some extent. Whilst we don't know what happened at the meeting in Uppsala, we know a little bit about what happened at a meeting in Vardstena a few weeks later. This meeting was set to be a serious attempt at negotiations between the council and the king, even though the king wasn't there personally. Once again, Hans Kröplin, the councillor from Stockholm, had sort of pre-negotiated with the king and representatives from the Hansa, and they had agreed to act as mediators in further negotiations. In Vodstena, it was agreed that a ceasefire was going to be in place from the 17th of June to the 29th of July, when a larger, even more formal meeting was to take place in Kalmar, with the king himself present, and with representatives from both the Swedish and Danish council, and yeah, the Hansa representatives acting as mediators. As they always like to do at this point in time. In general, by the summer, and especially into the autumn of 1436, the rebellion in Sweden dies down, at least in terms of actual fighting. Likely this was due in part to Engelbrecht, who had always been a military man of action and able to rally peasant forces around him to fight, being gone from the scene. But also, the Swedes had, for all intents and purposes, succeeded in getting the king to the negotiating table. Historians largely agree that the rebellion was successful because the three different groups of the nobility, the church and the peasants had rose up against the king as one unit. Now they've gotten this far, and with the nobility being the dominant party in the rebellion, with Engelbrecht no longer there as the vocal leader of the peasants, the Swedes are going to choose negotiation over confrontation with the king. At the meeting in Kalmar, the Drotz, Christian Nilsson, very much assumes the role of the voice of the Swedish rebellion. It's worth keeping in mind that he is the older, more senior nobleman and statesman in the group that led the rebellion. People like Erik Puke and Karl Knudsson Bunde, they're both quite young. They're in their early 30s, so won't have that natural gravitas of the older statesmen. Yeah, and the Swedes open up negotiations by laying into the king. They don't mince their words, and so they state that the king has not acted according to Swedish law and not adhered to previous agreements. The only way the Swedes will take him back as king is if he agrees that all counties and castles in the country are to be ruled by native Swedes that the council have suggested and the king just approves, and that the Swedish Drots and Mask are given one castle and the surrounding county of each to have their own source of income. Moreover, all taxes that are collected in Sweden will remain in Sweden, so no more Swedish money funding wars between Denmark and its neighbours to the south, for example. 
The king also has to drop his plan to make Bogoslav of Pomerania the heir to the throne. Oh, and let's not forget, taxes must be lowered. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, taxes must be lowered. Uh, someone grumbled in the background. Uh, or probably some Swedish peasant representative shouted it from the back of the room after Christian Nilsson had finished reading out his list. And then, yeah, he said, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, and something about taxes going down, I guess. <gasps> Uh, possibly that's how it happened. Either way, these demands are way too harsh for the king to agree to. Everything from changing the succession to losing power over castles, it's just too much. In fact, both the Hansa mediators and the Danish council think that the Swedes are pushing it a bit, starting off too strong here and being a bit unreasonable. Maybe they thought that if they opened with a list of demands so far-reaching, they knew it wouldn't be accepted. You always ask for more than you actually want. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that it was a negotiation tactic. And so a lengthy discussion then ensues on what native actually means, since the council demands that only native Swedes are put in power in castles and over the local counties. Did native mean just from Sweden, or did it include the Kalmar Union? The king wants native to be interpreted as anyone who owns property in Sweden or is married to a Swede, but the mediators don't agree. After all, that would just likely result in the king continuing to put foreigners loyal to him in power, but just by giving them a castle or a farm somewhere or making them marry a Swede. Yeah, you could see how that would create a massive loophole in the law. The Swedish council tried to get their Danish counterparts on their side by saying that, hey, Danes are welcome to live freely in Sweden, own property and have the same rights as Swedes. We just don't want you exerting local power in our counties by ruling from our castles. This seems to be working to some extent. The king had hoped he could play the two councils against each other to his own benefit at the meeting. But instead, the more the Danish council hear from the Swedes about how bad the king is and what limits to his power they want put in place, the more they are starting to agree with them. It's like the more the Danes listen to the Swedes and their long list of grievances, the more they're starting to think... Well, hang on, the king does that in Denmark too, and we don't like it. We don't like his increasingly dictatorial style of ruling, sidelining us in the council. And you know what? We also really don't like the idea of him bringing in this Bugislav kid as his heir. The fact that the Swedes increasingly got the Danish council on their side is a major breakthrough in the negotiations and a huge setback for the king. In the end, an agreement is signed on the 1st of September 1436 that does reinstate Eric as king of Sweden, but he's become the one thing he so strongly fought against in the previous agreement. That's because this new agreement means he's essentially just become a yes-man to the council. He now has to rule Sweden according to the decisions made by the Swedish council. The only thing that the Swedes didn't get in the negotiations was that taxes collected in Sweden could still be spent elsewhere in the Kalmar Union. Yes, but that being said, several of the other issues, including lowering taxes, also hadn't properly been resolved, but rather agreed to be delayed and discussed further at another meeting set to be held in Söderköping at the end of the month. And only after that meeting would Erik be formally reinstated as king. Nonetheless, the fact that so much was still left up in the air and that Erik still wasn't formally back on the throne didn't stop them from concluding the Kalmar meeting with a large ceremony of atonement between the king and the Swedes. This seems to have all been laden with symbolism and quite indicative of how religious Sweden was at the time. The king and the Swedish rebels gathered on the main square in Kalmar, and then, as all the church bells rang out, the Swedes kneeled before the king, begging for his mercy. The king then took each one by the hand and raised them back up to their feet, symbolising his forgiveness, almost in a sort of divine way, like he forgives those who kneeled before him. I mean, yeah, it's quite ironic and probably, like you said, says something about the traditions and symbolism of the time because you can easily see parallels with Jesus and the Christian teachings of forgiveness here. But then at the same time, in reality, they still haven't solved quite a few of their differences and were probably far from ready to actually forgive and move on. 
Indeed, but before we continue with what happens at the meeting in Söderköping, it's worth taking just a quick look at what's going on internally in the Swedish council and between the main figures of the rebellion. Karl Knutsen Bunda, or KKB as Orsa and I write him in our notes, is increasingly emerging as the dominant figure in Sweden and in the rebellion and negotiations with King Eric. With Engelbrecht gone, KKB has more freedom to push his own agenda through. Now there's no longer any annoying popular figure there arguing about lowering taxes and other important peasant issues, he can focus on what he wants to do and what many in the nobility consider as being more important. Born in 1408 or 1409, he's still quite young at this point. Karl Knutsen Bunda is very much high nobility. He's rich, to put it bluntly. He owns several estates and has a large amount of private wealth. And he doesn't hesitate to use that to fund his own soldiers. Yeah, he basically has his own mini army or the armed gang that serves him. The first part of his surname, Knutsson, that's because, well, his dad was called Knut. Sweden at this time was still sticking to the son and daughter ending in the naming traditions for surnames. Karl Knutsson Bundes' dad was a nobleman by the name of Knut Tordsson. The second part, Bunde, that's the noble family or dynasty that he belongs to. Bunde is actually the Swedish word for farmer, funnily enough, but these guys were far from labouring on the fields. In fact, they were one of the wealthiest noble families in the country. And the Bunde family is still around, not uh, Karl Knutsson's line though, they died out in the 1800s, but another branch of the family is still around and they're still called Bunde. The main other figure now is of course Eric Puke, or Eric Nielsen Puke, or Puke, um, <laughs> as I want to call him. As we've mentioned, and you can tell from their names, the son of name plus a dynasty name means that Puke is also a member of the nobility, but not quite high up the internal structure of the nobility. Because, yeah, he's uh, Eric Nilsson, son of Niels, and Puke, son of the Puke noble family. He's also rich, but not quite as rich as KKB. But just like KKB, Puke is also young. We don't know exactly when he was born, but he's also likely to be in his middle to late 20s or even early 30s. He's described as eager to act, spontaneous and not afraid of violence. Puke sees himself as Engelbrecht's natural successor in the rebellion and negotiations with the king. Like Engelbrecht, he's been more on the side of the peasantry and favoured their priority issue with the taxes over the issues that the nobility wanted to push. But he is gradually being outmaneuvered by KKB, who combines a ruthless personality with deep pockets and consequently a means to pay his way to power which was, to a certain extent, how society worked back then. A weak state system meant that if you could pay, and like KKB, for example, create your own mini-army, well, then that made you powerful, essentially. And following Engelbrecht's death, and as open hostilities die down a little in Sweden, Puke and KKB begin to argue over who should get certain estates and lands that are now left vacant. KKB has already secured the important castle at Nyköping's Hus for himself after the Danish bailiff there was forced out. Puke and KKB mainly argue over who should get Engelbrecht's old powerhouse of Örebro Castle. KKB moves in to secure it first after doing some shady deals with Engelbrecht's inheritors, but then in the summer of 1436, Puke tries to bribe the people who work at the castle to join him in a takeover, but they've actually already been paid more by KKB to stay loyal to him, so they resist Puke's attempt of a takeover. Yeah, there's a lot of double and triple dealing going on there. Then there is a third person with a lot of power in Sweden at this point, and that's the Dots, Christian Nilsson, who we've already mentioned. 
He is also a member of the nobility. His uh, dynasty or family name is Vosa. He is much older than both Pulke and KKB. They're in their mid-twenties to early thirties, whereas he's likely to be in his late sixties, perhaps even early seventies. Again, we don't know exactly when he was born, but probably in the mid-1360s, so he's been around for a while. And he is more of the older senior statesman, and we see how he's much less power-hungry and kind of not out there just to get everything he can lay his hands on like the other two. But he also achieves less than they do and is, to a large extent, outmaneuvered by KKB, even though at the official meetings, Christian Nilsson is the representative of the Swedish Council and so on, and he's noticeably annoyed by KKB at some times. So that's an interesting dynamic there to keep in mind between these three. But back to the meeting in Soda Shopping. As we said, King Eric and the Swedish Council had kicked the can down the road when it came to several important issues, and on the 29th of September, it's time for them to sit down again and try and sort them out. Karl Knutsonbunde has decided not to come. He's going to stay at home in Nyköping's hus, surrounded by his mini-army, and just wait it out. He knows Christian Nilsson is increasingly annoyed with his power-grabbing, and he's now made more enemies with several other noblemen as well. He thinks that if he comes to Söderköping, they're more likely to start demanding he give some of those estates that he's taken over back and basically force him to start sharing and play nicely. So, no, he's going to stay away and hope just no one notices. Perhaps not very likely, but the rest of the Swedish Council and other important members of the nobility gather at Söderköping and wait for the king. And um, they wait a bit more, they perhaps play some board games, look at the clock, wait a bit more. It gets to that point where you think, do we just leave because nobody's getting here? Oh, we'll just wait another hour because he might just turn up. And um, eventually someone just probably like slams their fist down on the table and says, where is he? Yeah, because September becomes October and still there's no king. Since the meeting in Kalmar, Erik has popped back to Denmark, and that means that he had to travel all the way up to Söderköping from Denmark, and when heading back up the east coast of Sweden towards Söderköping, he is caught in a terrible storm and shipwrecked. And he dies. What?! No, no, he didn't. <laughs> no, I was like, I've done the research. That's not what happens. Yeah, surprise, he doesn't die. Um, but perhaps the, some of the Swedes did think he had died because in just one of those crazy twists of fate in history, King Eric is shipwrecked and stuck on Gotland. Sources actually differ in the description of what happened. Some say he's shipwrecked in a storm and manages to get to Gotland to save himself. Others say that he's made a short stop on Gotland and when there's a terrible storm comes in it means he can't leave but either way he doesn't get to soda shopping and he's on Gotland and this means that the Swedish nobility move in to take advantage of this. Exactly when they hear that the king is shipwrecked or stranded on Gotland whichever way it was it was not like they went oh okay then we'll postpone the meeting to when he can attend so that we're all here. No, instead, they went, great, the king can't make it. Well, now we're going to decide whatever we want and make him agree with it. Because, well, he's not here, so he can't say anything. We want to do this, uh, and just, king, what are you going to say? Oh, nothing, because you're on Gotland. All right, that's decided then. It's very much a school playground way of deciding things. It's <laughs> yeah. like, what are we going to do after school with James? Let's ask him. Oh, he's not here. Right, we're taking James's stuff or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's the bully's attitude to negotiations. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. And so instead of a meeting to negotiate terms between the king and the council, the Söderschöping meeting becomes an internal meeting for the Swedish council and nobility where they decide what they want to do. 
It's pretty harsh, it seems, but why should they give Eric a chance after all his previous examples of not really negotiating faithfully? So they never formally reinstate Eric as king either, which was what they were going to do after this meeting. But he's not really out of the picture in the story yet, so we're not going to say goodbye to him. He's still, of course, got a very strong power base down in Denmark, and that's just going to uh, keep him in power. And this decision at the council meeting is just going to annoy him, so he's not going to take this lying down. Someone who is very much going to get into the picture now, as soon as he hears of the meeting changing nature, that is Karl Knudsson Bunde. He jumps up from where he was sitting at Nyköping's hus and rides as fast as he can to Söderköping because now he realizes that he needs to be there to wield his political power and make sure that he's not forgotten about or loses his estates and lands when the Swedes start to decide among themselves what's going to happen and start dividing local power up between them. The Swedes agree once and for all that all non-native Swedish bailiffs must leave Sweden. And this time there's no fuzzy description of what native means, trying to sneak Danes in as well. This time Swedish means born in Sweden to a Swedish family. Overall, the Söderköping meeting lasts until the end of October, and it's a great success for the high nobility, whereas the representation of the peasants and their issues are increasingly being sidelined. Karl Knutson Bunda emerges as the most powerful person after this meeting, and along with Christian Nielsen, he's elected to lead the country in absence of a king. Puke, on the other hand, is not given any position of power formally. KKB also manages to make sure that he not only holds onto lands and estates that he's taken over thus far, but also that people who are loyal to him get lands and position in this new order in Sweden. Yeah, he's engaging in some good old-fashioned friendship corruption, to put it plainly. One man dares to speak up against this, though, and he will live to regret it. Or, actually, he will die to regret it. It's a man called Bröder Svensson, who is a knight and minor noble from the border region with Halland in the south of Sweden. He's also lived quite a life. He's been a pirate during the Kalmar Union's wars against Holstein and the Hansa, and lately during the rebellion in Sweden, he's fought alongside Engelbrecht and the peasants against the king. Being a pirate really seems to be everyone's second career at this point in time. It really does seem like a fun hobby that most of them seem to have. At Söderköping, Bröder Svensson is not given any lands or castles because, to put it plainly, he's a nobody, at least in the eyes of KKB. He's not high nobility and he doesn't have a fancy name or dynasty behind him. So this isn't perhaps too surprising when uh, Bröder Svensson decides to speak up. He thinks it's simply not fair that he's not been acknowledged for his heroic deeds during the fighting. I mean, he thinks he should get at least a tiny castle considering all the things he's done, especially when the likes of KKB are taking more than their fair share when Sweden is being split up amongst the members of the meeting. But KKB is having none of this complaining. He doesn't care about some minor pirate come night, and he basically deals with Bruder Svensson the way someone deals with an annoying fly that buzzes around your ear. He swats at it. Yeah, and uh, unlike most flies, he actually hits the, the fly. That's because, like you said, Bröder Svensson isn't well positioned, he hasn't got alliances to back him up, and so to KKB he's more of an annoyance than a threat. But Karl Bunder is also keen to make a point, and that point is that he doesn't want to hear any of this complaining from those he considers below him. So immediately after the meeting, in November 1436, Broder Svensson is taken away by KKB's private army, decapitated, and his body is sent to Vardstena Abbey to be buried. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty brutal. What happens to Broder Svensson is an example of just how ruthless life in Sweden was at the time, especially if you were in any way connected to politics and power. There was no gratitude for what you had previously done, but rather it was all a game of taking and maintaining as much power as you personally could. 
Yeah, and we really see how members of the high nobility, especially Kalknuks and Bunda, quickly move in to solidify their newfound power after the meeting in Söderschöping. Just a few weeks after the meeting, the last foreign bailiff, the Danish bailiff Erik Nielsen at Stockholm Castle, leaves and hands over the keys to KKB and Christian Nielsen in their positions of drots and mask to hold it jointly. So one of the main issues that started this whole rebellion has been achieved. There are now no more foreign bailiffs, and as such, no foreigners exerting local power in Sweden. But whilst that is the case, the other main thing that kicked off the rebellion, in particular for the peasants, these high taxes, are far from solved. In fact, now these new members of the Swedish high nobility are taking up even more local power, now they've been handed various lands and castles after it was divided up at Söderschöping, well, now they've started imposing their own new personal taxes on the people in the local areas, so it doesn't matter that they're foreign or Swedish, the taxes are still there, or even increasing. The peasants' anger has still been simmering away and it's now growing. They feel like the plight and burden of living under one overlord hasn't eased, it's simply been replaced by another one. All these promises have just been conveniently forgotten. King Erik or Kalknudsonbunde, foreign bailiff or Swedish nobleman bailiff, well, it's all the same to them. They just work and toil and pay high taxes. Where they had previously directed their anger to the king, it's now directed towards Kalknudsonbunde and members of the high nobility. And in that anger, they find a friend, someone who's also angry at Kalknudsonbunde, but perhaps mainly for personal reasons, and that's of course Puke. Yes, as we mentioned at the start of the episode, Puke and KKB had this personal conflict going on over who would take over after Engelbrecht, both in terms of leadership, but also in terms of taking over actual property and land. As the months and weeks pass, this conflict is getting worse. The straw that seemed to have broke the camel's back was when KKB, who had already taken Örebro Castle that Puke wanted, also gets his hand on Västerås castle. Västerås castle was symbolic as the place where the revolt began, and it had also been Puke's dad's old command, so he thought it was only fair that he got it. But once again, KKB swiftly and firmly moves in and takes control over that as well, which greatly angers Puke. Still, it's not like Puke is, you know, a poor homeless person. He still holds Castleholm Castle on Erland, Telje Castle and County, Rasbo, Rekana and Orkabu Hergreds and Arbuga Town. He might also have controlled Helsingland up north and Korsholm County over in Finland. So yeah, he's he shouldn't be complaining too much. He's still got plenty of land. Most importantly, he still has a lot of influence among the peasants and merchants in the traditional heartland of the revolt, in the areas around Westeros, Westmanland, Dalarna, and the mining district of Bergslagen. Here he's seen as Engelbrecht's good old friend and natural successor, especially when compared to the power-hungry and aloof Karl Kutzenbunder. So Puke's personal conflict with KKB and the peasants' increased anger towards the nobility because of the taxes well, that makes for a perfect combination. With Puke assuming much the same role as Engelbrecht had a few years earlier, the peasants once again get their crossbows and axes out to make their grievances heard, the violent way. Puke also seems to have learned something from Engelbrecht's fiery way of giving speeches, and he holds these rallying meetings with local peasants, promising that if they help him get into power and get rid of KKB, he will not levy taxes in Örebro County at all, and he will turn Örebro Castle into a monastery and final resting place for Engelbrecht's body, who we see is already becoming a martyr symbol for the peasants' cause. Yeah, perhaps Engelbrecht left behind a Rebel Rousing Speeches Cliff Notes book for Puke to read and study after he's gone. And uh, maybe he was standing there talking about Karl Kutz and Bunda and going, lock him up, lock him up, lock him up. <laughs> Quite possibly. To try and calm Puke down, KKB offers to give him 
all the tax income from Helsingland County. But at this stage, that is too little too late for Puke and the peasants. As winter approaches in 1436, the personal dispute between them is becoming a civil conflict, soon to embrace the whole country. In December, Puke rallies the people of Rekane and Åkerbo to come meet him in Arboga. From there, he sends a letter of rebellion, known as a Fejdebrev, to Karl Knudsenbunde, who is in Västerås castle at this time. The letter is a sort of declaration of war, accusing KKB of being no better than the king and those foreign bailiffs, and calling him a tormentor of the peasants. In the letter, Puke also states that he no longer agrees with the decision of the council to grant Engelbrecht's murderer protection until trial is being held. And then he and his peasant army start their march on Vesteros. Karl Knutsenbunda seems surprised by this escalation of the conflict. He might have Vesteros and Ourobrug castles, but there he's surrounded by hostile peasants because this is right in the middle of Puke's power base. He has more of his men sent to these castles in case the peasants decide to lay siege to them when they arrive, but in Vesteros he has to resort to threats to get the locals to join him with his militia because they would clearly rather join Puke. Seemingly fearing meeting Puke in open battle, KKB leaves a force of 120 men to hold Vesteros and heads to Stockholm to gather more support. He's quite successful in doing so there. Jots Christian Nielsen, the Archbishop and the Stockholm Town Council all side with KKB against Puke. The nobility and the church clearly fear the support that Puke is able to gather amongst the peasants, and not least the number he gathers. In terms of manpower, they are definitely the stronger side. There are many more peasants than there are nobility and clergy, and the latter fear that their power could slip away in this revolt too if it would spread and a majority of the population started to side with the rebellion. After all, they'd only just gotten back power from the king. They weren't just going to give it away to the peasants, that's for sure. Nonetheless, it seems to have bothered nobility that Puke was one of their own, so to speak. He was a nobleman, the son of an influential nobleman, and they didn't like division in their own ranks. What he was doing was siding with the smelly peasants and who were used to backbreaking farming and mining, so why was he doing that? It was fine having internal conflict within the nobility, but he's getting the peasants involved, and what was that all about? The nobility, there's a few of them, but they're certainly powerful, and to a certain extent their power rests upon them being united, both upwards against the king and downwards against the peasants. There wasn't any sympathy or mercy for what we would perhaps call today class traitors in some areas of society. At the same time, the peasants' support for Puke is only growing. He is aided by the fact that this is all going on in winter, so a lot of men can be spared from work on the farms and in the fields to instead go and join the rebellion. After all, a lot of these farmers live essentially hand-to-mouth and couldn't necessarily afford to leave their farm in the middle of the harvest or planting season. But now they've got some free time on their hands, they might as well rebel. Whilst Puke's support is greatest in central Sweden, news of the revolt spreads quickly among the Swedish peasants. Entirely unaided by Puke, the peasants around Vardstena rise up on their own accord against Jusser Eriksson, the old Danish bailiff who was previously at Vesteros Castle, who in a way had been that spark that ignited the flame of rebellion in the first place, since it was his harsh rule that made Engelbrecht and the peasants in Bergslagen rise up. At the meeting in Söderköping, it had been decided that Jusser would be allowed to settle in Vardstena, mainly because he'd given large donations to the abbey there. But this time Jusser is finally going to get it, as according to the Abbey Annals, he is attacked by a group of peasants and killed with an axe on the 9th of December. But whilst they might have had the numbers, the peasants lack the equipment and skill to take on heavily fortified castles, and in the end they're not able to take over neither Vesteros nor Örebro Castle. We've seen many times how better trained and armed troops can defeat lesser equipped militias, and this is definitely the case when it comes to sieges and castles. So Puke decides to head to Dalarna to gather even more support. 
He arrives on the 16th of December and immediately gets the locals on his side with rallying cries against the nobility. In Dalarna, he also manages to get lower, less influential members of the nobility to join him too, because they feel like they're not being represented or listened to by the high nobility and the clergy. Most notably, KKB's own bailiff, the man he's put in charge to exert local control in Dalarna, Hans Mortensen, switches sides and joins Puke. KKB hasn't been idle whilst this has been going on. In fact, he's been very busy. By the 20th of December, he has now rallied enough political support and gathered enough men to join his forces to be ready to launch an attack. From Stockholm, he heads up north to Uppland via the town of Enköping and then to Västerås. Thanks to superior equipment and trained manpower, Puke's peasant forces in the town are easily put down. To make an example, KKB burns five peasant leaders at the stake in front of Vesteros castle and plunders the town of Tilsella. Yes, unsurprisingly, given what we know of his ruthless character, KKB is clearly showing no mercy to the peasants he comes across. He's going to put them and their rebellion down once and for all, and do so swiftly and firmly. He then takes a short break to celebrate Christmas, because, you know, stop your fighting to have a nice Christian happy, you know, be nice to your neighbour Christmas Day celebration in Arburga. And then the first days of the new year, 1437, he then moves on to put down the rebellion in Nurka County, where he punishes the rebelling peasants by enforcing a new tax on them. A very Christian of him. He decides to keep striking whilst the iron is hot, so to say, and continues north into Dalarna, thinking he'll take care of the rebellion there before it is even fully formed. According to the Karl Chronicle, which is likely grossly exaggerated, he enters the county with a force of 3,000 men on the 13th of January. In the meantime, Puke and Hans Mortensen have been gathering more men in Dalarna, Jastrikland and Helsingland. Their force had moved south, and on the 17th of January it's finally time for the two sides to meet in open battle, by Harrecker's church, about 30 kilometres north of Vesteros. It's two very different forces that face each other here. Puke and his peasants don't have the same training and equipment as Karl Knutsenbunder and his nobles have. And on the other hand, they're more skilled in guerrilla warfare, hiding in the vegetation and using surprise attacks. Which would have been great, apart from it's January and in Sweden, so there's almost no vegetation left to hide in. Instead, during the battle, Karl Knutsenbunder is able to take advantage of his superior artillery and cavalry. There is no preserved record that objectively describes the battle, but historians assume it must have been quite an even match, because both sides eventually agree to a ceasefire and opt for negotiation instead. Whilst provisions for the negotiation is set up, Puke is given free passage to return to Vesteros. Now, what happens next has been a topic of debate ever since 1437. According to Karl Knutsenbunda, two of his knights who accompanied Puke to Vesteros overhear him and his ally Hans Mortensen conspiring against KKB. However, other sources state that the negotiations had already begun in Vesteros, but in the middle of the negotiations, the room where they were being held in filled with smoke from likely a fire that had been set on purpose. In the chaos that followed, Puke and Mortensen are arrested. There's also a third version of events, put forward in the 1460s by historian Ericus Olay, who wrote what was then a seminal work on Swedish history called Chronica Regium Gothrium, or the Chronicle of the Reigns of the Goths. In it, KKB is portrayed as a master villain who betrays the peasants and sort of steals the whole rebellion from them and ignores their issues for his own selfish gain. Eric Zolay writes that negotiations between Puke and KKB actually took place in Stockholm. Puke passionately argues for his cause as to why he decided to take up arms, and again, just like in the other version, the room where the negotiations were taking place filled with smoke and the whole thing is moved to Stockholm Castle, where Puke continues his enraged speech against his opponents. Drotz Christian Nielsen uses Puke's enraged behaviour as a reason to have him arrested. Whichever way it happened, Mortensen, who was of lower status than Puke, 
doesn't even get a trial. Instead, he is killed. Some sources say he's beheaded. Others says he's gibbeted the next day in front of Westerhaus Castle. I mean, gibbeted, that's particularly not nice. That is when you're wrapped in chains and placed in a cage and then hung in the air until you die. Sometimes if you're lucky, you were placed in the cage when you were already dead. But some people were put in this cage to die. A notable example of this that you might perhaps have heard of is the Scottish pirate Captain Kidd. Puke avoids this fate and is taken to Stockholm, uh, if he wasn't already there, probably sometime in early February 1437. Once again, sources differ on exactly what happens next. Erika Soleil writes that Christian Nielsen, who was in charge of the trial in his role as Drotz, sentences Puke to death by decapitation. Erika Soleil further writes that the Drotz was supported in his decision by the Archbishop, even going as far as saying as this uh, decapitation was the Archbishop's idea. Even though the sources differ on the detail and come from very different points of view, one thing is certain, and that is Eric Pouquet is no more. He is executed, and that is it. In the space of less than a year, the Swedish revolt has lost two of its main figures, and most notably, they've lost the two figures that championed the issues of the peasants, and in particular their complaints against high taxes. Exactly. The Puke dispute, which these events after the death of Engelbrecht and until the death of Puke is usually called in Swedish history, is sometimes portrayed as nothing more than a personal vendetta between Puke and KKB, which to some extent it was. But it did drag the whole country in with it, and it created a very clear division in what had previously been a joint force in the rebellion against the king. The Puke dispute smashed that and instead turned peasants against nobility and clergy within Sweden. The events of the autumn and winter of 1436 and 1437 highlights the tension and unresolved issues that were still there in Sweden, even after the arguably successful revolt against King Erik. This is seen not least in how quickly the peasants were ready to take up arms again when Puke approaches them and when he decides to escalate his personal disagreement with KKB to a national armed conflict. KKB, on the other hand, comes across as a cold-hearted young man who favours a kind of extreme form of realpolitik, just anything goes to achieve the aims. Instead of compromising in negotiation after the battle, he simply moves to get rid of his opponent. It's uh, been a very interesting development, but that's where we'll end it for today. In the next episode, we're likely going to take a bit of a break from the regular timeline with something a bit different. But when we come back after that, we'll look at the repercussions of Puke's death and see how Sweden tries to move forward after all these years of revolt and uprisings. And thank you for listening. And as always, if you like us, don't forget to leave a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so by emailing flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Just search a flatpack history of Sweden. And don't forget to check out our website, aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where you can find a list of the sources we use, episode pictures, family trees, and all that kind of stuff. And until next time, take care and hey, do. Bye bye. <laughs>